Atish. Last night on Monday Night Football, Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots beat Sean McDermott and the Buffalo Bills 14 to 10. Sean McDermott after the game had some interesting things to say and I'd like for you to take a listen. Let's not give more credit than we need to give credit to Bill Belichick in this one. It was, um, whether it's Bill or anybody else, they beat us, right? But you sit here and you tell me when they start with the average starting, when we start with the average starting field position at the 40-yard line and he starts with the 23-yard line, and I'm rounding up in both cases, and we were 1 for 4 in the red zone and they were 0 for 1 in the red zone, you give me that ahead of them, I'm saying I like my chances. I like my chances. So it's not, I don't think, with all due respect, it's not a Bill Belichick type thing. It's what are you doing with the opportunities you got? What are you doing with the opportunities you got? We turn the ball over at the plus 30-some yard line. Sloppy football. Now, some of you might not understand what that means. Don't worry about it, because Uncle Jimmy's bilingual, and I've got you covered, and I'm going to translate it for you. What that simply means is, hater in the house. Okay, let me tell y'all something, man. Bill Belichick showed up and showed out. He out ugly the Bills Mafia in their own house. Look here, man. How you gonna lose a football game to a team that only throw the ball three times and complete two of them? I believe, I could be wrong, but I think this is what one of my daddies meant when they said that if you keep punching a man in the same eye, he's gonna eventually go blind. See? The New England Patriots played a good old-fashioned game of smash-mouth football, running the ball 40 times last night. See here? And if I may, I'd like to quote the great John Madden, and he said, this is a good old-fashioned slobber-knocker football. But hey, like I said, it was an ugly game. Let me tell you, let me tell you exactly what Bill Belichick did last night, okay? Bill Belichick showed up last night at Monday Night Football and had a fat chick walking around on the sidelines wearing a bathing suit. It was like a car wreck, America, and we couldn't take our eyes off of her, okay? Listen, Sarah Palin back in the day used to have a phrase and she used to say, you can't put lipstick on a pig. But you know what Bill Belichick just told the world last night? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> hey, that's how he does it. Anyway, man, look, it's Tuesday. We got a great show planned for you. And listen, I want to thank you all for joining us. And uh, in case you smell anything burning that smells like bacon, hey, don't worry about it. Jason's on fire today as usual, okay? So look, we want to welcome to the show. Once again, we got our fearless contributor, TJ Moe, coming back into the house to get some more of this smoke, uh-uh, hand-to-hand. We also have our overseas affiliate, Steve Kim. He's going to be in here to talk about it. He's going to give his opinions on what's going on in the NFL and talk about what's happening in, uh, with New England there. And real quick, Phyllis Army, I got a gambling question for you, okay? Last night, the Patriots threw the ball three times in the game, okay? Here's the question for y'all, and I need you to hit me in the comment section. What's the over and under how many times we're gonna have Steve Kim say the phrase, hey, Jay? All right, listen here, man. Also, we got it coming new to the show. We have the author. We have, his name is Jay McWhorter. And he's coming in here to- John McWhorter. Damn, John McWhorter, I'm sorry. Anyway, he's gonna be coming here to talk about his book, Woke Racism, okay? And lastly, we have the Minister of Intel, Delano Squires. 
He's coming in here to discuss his latest column that he's written for The Blaze about radicalized identity politics. It's a must-see, must-hear. You got to check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time. It's Mr. Button time. It's time to hit the like. It's time to hit the subscribe. It's time to give him five stars. If for no reason, if for no other reason, it's because that's the only thing that won't make his cholesterol go up. So how about it? Let's do it. Release the doves. Release the hounds. Type dilly dilly if you feel me. Listen, some people say if you hold a seashell to your ear, you can hear the ocean. But if you get close enough to Jason and put your ear to his belly, you can hear chicken fry. I need y'all to give it up for my guy, Big Jason Whitlock. Great job, Jim, uh, and happy Tuesday to everyone. Jim, I need you to pay careful attention uh, to what I'm about to discuss at the beginning of the show, because we're going to discuss it at the end of the show when we do an actual approval rating on Bill Belichick, because uh, I'm going to continue your conversation. You got your little take on Sean McDermott's statements and, and your reaction to it. But I want you to pay, and I need the audience to pay very close attention to what I'm about to talk about because it relates to a conversation Jim and I have had in private amongst ourselves, amongst me and him. And, and it relates to an idea or my belief that pride, and it's, you know, the Bible says it's one of the, you know, seven deadly sins. And, and I think some people lose sight of the potential damaging impact of pride because we tend to think of pride as this great thing and that we should have it. And, and I think it's particularly acute uh, for us in the black community. A lot of our music uh, celebrates pride. And I can remember James Brown's song in the I don't know when it came, the 60s, 70s, whenever I'm black and I'm proud, say it loud. Uh, we think having pride is one of the greatest things you can have. And I don't think we ever consider the downside of pride. And so when I was watching the Patriots-Bills game last night, Bill Belichick and the way the Patriots went about that victory made me think about Bill Belichick's lack of pride and how it, he will do anything in pursuit of a victory. He doesn't care what it looks like. He doesn't care how he goes about it. He doesn't let pride stand in the way of getting the results that he's afterwards. And it, it just me watching the Patriots last night, uh, they threw the ball three times. Uh, they ran the ball 46 times. It was an ugly, boring football game. And it made me, and I've got a great deal of respect for Bill Belichick, but it even elevated my respect even more. And I, I thought about last night as I'm watching that, like, 
if Tom Brady were there rather than Mac Jones, a rookie quarterback, if Cam Newton perhaps, is he, and Cam's not a great thrower or whatever, but if any more established quarterback had been there, uh, would they have been good with Belichick's approach to that game last night? As it relates to Tom Brady, I probably tend to think he would have been good. Tom Brady doesn't let pride stand in the way. Uh, but I'm telling you, uh, Jim, and I can't wait to circle back to you. I'm going to talk first with T.J. Moe and, and, and Steve Kim about that game. But it made me think, Jim and the audience and anybody uh, in Kansas City, years ago when I was making my bones in Kansas City and working in Kansas City, uh, I had a very good friend named Joe Magnusina. And, and Joe, and this is the, you know, a former iteration of me, uh, Joe owned a strip club in Kansas City called Diamond Joe's. And he was very good friends uh, with Derek Thomas, and Derek Thomas actually introduced me to Joe. And this, again, this is what I'm in my uh, mid-20s in Kansas City, and, and Joe became one of my best friends. He's a dear friend, a mentor, uh, somewhat older guy that I, I really, really respect. And Joe, very wealthy, uh, you know, an established businessman in the Kansas City area for a long time, uh, very good to me and my family. Uh, you know, treated my mother like a queen, treated any of my friends. And again, I've been friends with people from many different walks of life, and I've been very honest with you all about, you know, who I was in my younger days. And so uh, you can sit and pass judgment on, you know, one of my best friends and mentors being a guy that owned a strip club. But uh, Joe Magnusini and his wife, Wendy, excellent people, good people to me, and taught me many lessons. And one of the lessons Joe taught me in my mid-20s that I've never forgotten is Joe's really wealthy, successful, and I can remember uh, having a conversation with Joe because anytime I came into Diamond Joe's or whatever, Joe would wait on me hand and foot. He would wait on Derek Thomas. He would wait on any other Chiefs players or anybody, virtually anybody that came in there. Joe would put an apron on and wait on you like he was part of the wait staff. And, and, and as Joe and I became close and I became close with his family and, and you know, I spent some holidays with his family, uh, you know, we socialized around town in, in Kansas City. I can remember turning to Joe at one point and saying, hey man, you're older than me, you're much wealthier than me, uh, you're really established. Why are you waiting on me hand and foot? Why are you putting on this apron and going to do this and going to do that for me? And, and Joe, and again, this is in the 90s and this is a reflection of the relationship. Back then you could speak very honestly to each other and no one would get offended. I'm still that same way, but this was certainly true in the uh, mid 1990s when, when I'm talking about. Joe said to me, he goes, it's one of the problems with uh, you black guys. Y'all let pride stand in the way of money. 
Y'all let pride stand in the way of doing what is the right thing. You go, I don't have a pride problem. Trust me on this. If there's a nickel on this floor, I'm going to bend over, pick it up, and put it in my pocket the same as if it was a $100 bill. And I've never forgotten that. That has stuck with me through the rest, for the rest of my life. This, I had to be 27, 28 years old when he told me this, and I remember making the commitment then in my mind. In pursuit of success, in pursuit of what's best for me or my family, I'm never gonna let pride stand in the way of doing what I think is the right thing for me, my family, and moving forward and having success. And when I think of my own career and some of the moves and the decisions that I've made that have benefited me greatly, it's because I don't let pride control me. Some of the unusual moves that I've made uh, have benefited me greatly. I can remember when I left ESPN to work at AOL Sports, and this is in the mid-2000s, or late 2000s, and people thought I was, man, why would you leave ESPN? And you going to AOL Sports? Ain't nobody over at AOL Sports? And I could see how pride and, and reputation and worrying about what other people think could have prevented me from making that move, but it was one of the best moves I ever made in my career. And I, hell, a year ago, a year and a half ago, when I was like, you know what? This thing for me and Fox Sports, despite all the money it's paying me, and despite whatever prestige comes from hosting a, a television show on a cable network, this ain't what makes me happy. This isn't what I want to do. I don't want to be here in Los Angeles. I'm going to leave and I'm going to go do this thing uh, without kicking Clay Travis. That's a removal of pride. That's a removal of, of not worrying about what other people think about the way I went about my business. It was the right thing for me and, when, and, and paid off tremendously. And when I decided after uh, you know, a short period of time, like, you know what, this outkick, that's not right for me. Th this business deal isn't what it was supposed to be and I'm gonna move. And so there's this whole thing of like, oh God, how's it gonna be perceived? And, and you, know, you gotta take more pride in yourself, blah, blah. It's like, nah, man, I'm not worried about that. I'm going to do what's best for me, my family, my career, my success, and not worry about how it looks to people on the outside that don't have all the information. And so when I looked at the Patriots last night, I'm looking at Bill Belichick, a man that will not allow pride to dictate any decision that he makes about pursuing success for the New England Patriots. And it was just hats off. And so it was just another layer. Bill Belichick's won six Super Bowls as the head coach of the Patriots. I think he won two as an assistant with Bill Parcells and the Giants. And, and he, he doesn't need to add any more layers to his reputation and the respect. But I'm not sure if I've seen anything more impressive than what he did last night and what he was able to get 53 players to buy into to doing last night. He's preaching basically the same message that Joe Maggs preached to me 
I don't know, however, 25, 26 years ago, and, and to see 53 guys buy into it, celebrate it, enjoy it, that they just went out and, and, and won a game uh, in the ugliest way possible, totally, you know, the NFL's gone pass happy, finesse happy, and, and screw it. Doesn't make sense. There's too much wind. I got this rookie quarterback. The number one thing I want to do is make sure we avoid turnovers. Although they muffed a punt, and and that cost in the game. But we're going to line up and run this football down the Buffalo Bills' throat. We're going to control the clock. We're going to limit the number of plays that we have to run on offense into this wind. And they won the game. And I just think it's an example of what a self-aware, confident person does with their ego and just eschews pride. Pride is a deadly sin, and we, and particularly for black people, we, we gotta get over this pride thing because when you start taking so much um, satisfaction or pride in your skin color, it limits your decision making. You start being loyal to this very surface level thing, the color of your skin. You're more loyal to that than anything else. And you can't see how loyalty to something this surface level as skin color prevents you from doing what's best for you as a person, best for your success. It's like, I, I wanna be loyal to my faith in a higher power. I wanna be loyal to my family that helped me. I don't want to be loyal to my skin color. And, and I say that not as that I have any shame or any negative feelings about my skin color. I say it because I know how surface level this is and how insignificant this actually is. And that the faith that my grandmother and 25th Street Baptist Church and my mother put in me and the philosophies that I derived from the church and my outlook and those beliefs that I got from the church, all more important than my skin color. Being loyal to my parents who made all kinds of sacrifices for me so that me and my brother and my stepsister and stepbrother could have success. Being loyal to them, far more important than this very surface level thing, the color of my skin. Those of you with kids making decisions that serve them, not your skin color, things that push your kids ahead, being loyal to that. You got nieces, nephews, family, friends, a wife, a husband, doing decisions that serve them more important than doing things that serve your skin color. This society has made 
skin color and or sexual preference or all these other things. Again, gay pride, black pride, all this other stuff, all these things that really just don't add up to a hill of beans. They've made that the priority and we've put our faith in God on the back burner, uh, the loyalty, the things that we owe our parents and other family members. We put all that on the back burner and we spend all of our time trying to figure out how we can serve our skin color, how we can serve our sexual preference. It's a mistake. And so maybe I'm making too much of what I saw from Bill Belichick and the Patriots last night, but I don't think I am. I think I, I saw an example of what a mature, strategic, calculated person will do in the pursuit of actual success, meaningful success. They don't let pride stand in the way. So hats off to Bill Belichick and the Patriots. Uh, TJ Moe is back with us here in studio today. TJ uh, spent some time, PJ, former Mizzou wide receiver, spent some time with the Patriots in 2013 when, you know, Tom Brady and Bill Belichick uh, were really at the height of their powers. They weren't winning Super Bowls then, but again, they, they were in their prime. And uh, Steve Kim is going to join us from Los Angeles to also get his impressions from uh, the Bills Patriots game. But TJ, I'll start with you and then we'll uh, bring in. Uh, uh, my man, my, the Korean Cosell, you know the Korean Cosell, Steve Kim, will bring him in. But anyway, my take, your reaction to my take on what we saw from Bill Belichick and the Patriots last night. I think you nailed it. And I think if you've ever been in the building, which I, I realize very few people get to do, it is plastered on the walls everywhere. Uh, we all hear as we play sports the term mental toughness. And most of the time you'd think, okay, that's about me overcoming adversity, right? You got to fight through whatever it is, and it's pretty much about yourself. Belichick redefined that. Uh, it, is, it is seriously plastered everywhere you can find it in this building. It says mental toughness equals doing the right thing for the team when everything isn't perfect for you. That is his definition of mental toughness, and you better know it, because he's gonna ask you. Um, that we see on display all the time. He has, he were, you were talking about pride. One of his rules is you do not talk about your contract ever to the media or anybody else. If he hears you talking about it, you're done. We know he believes in this because in 2009, Randy Moss started talking about his contract and he was gone. Two years after setting, a, what he scored, 23 touchdowns? Yeah. Two years later, started talking about his contract. See you later. He was again, he went from being great with Minnesota, didn't know his name hardly when he played for the Raiders. They resurrected his career and you saw what Randy Moss could be. And then after that, he was a nobody again because he started doing something that was not best for the team. There's another guy, Jonas Gray. If you don't remember his name, I don't blame you. You might have had he not been late for practice one day because the week before, he scored four touchdowns and had over 200 yards as an as a, uh, undrafted free agent. He, I think, was on at least the cover of ESPN or, I mean, he was a... That's one of the greatest single games in Patriots history. There was a snowstorm. This is late in the year. He was late. Five, ten minutes, I don't know. Inactive the next game. You never heard his name again. You in New England will do what is best for the team. You will follow the rules. You will do exactly what Belichick has set out, or you won't be a part of what they're doing. Uh, Korean Cosell, uh, 
let's bring you in. Uh, what was your reaction to the Patriots-Bills game last night and, and my take about how, you know, Bill Belichick will do anything in pursuit of a victory? Uh, first of all, great to join you guys. First of all, I thought it was the most fascinating yet boring but interesting football game I've seen at the National Football League level in a long time because I don't remember the last time that I saw 30-plus running plays where it's not snowing. And just the fact that Bill Belichick already took a pretty safe game plan with the rookie quarterback on the road against a very talented team. And once Damian Harris busted that run, they started the body punch a very talented Buffalo Bills front consistently. And he said, you know what? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it goes back to something that you said and what TJ expounded on is compliance and coachability is incredibly key in New England. I actually know someone that was in camp. His name was Quatrain Hill, played at the U and, and on those monster teams in the 2000s. And his last attempt to make an NFL roster was in 2007 – he was in minicamp with New England, and I asked him one day over lunch because he was a fighter at one point, and we became pretty close. And I, I said to Quatrain, you, you were in camp with Belichick. You were there for a few weeks. Is Belichick just smarter than everybody when it comes to football? And he looks and he goes, no, it's not just the football intelligence. He's obviously a great diagnostic coach, but Steve, this is where it's different than any coach and any staff I've ever been around. They're in minicamp, so it had to be in April or May. Randy Moss had just joined the team in 2007, and he said, Steve, I'll never forget Tom Brady in a drill, flubs a pass, throws a two-hopper. He said that Belichick literally cussed him out for about 30 seconds, and his exact words were, I could get someone from effing Foxborough High to throw that pass, and he got on him. Horn blows for the next drill, and everyone's moving around to their different sections of the field, and Randy Moss is jogging with some offensive players, Quatrine's right near him, and Randy, Randy Moss was stunned. He goes, wait a minute, y'all do that to Brady? And the players around him that had been there said, yes, it starts with Brady first and foremost, and the rest of us have to get in the line. Nobody is treated differently. So, Jay, I actually disagree. If it was Tom Brady last night and that running game's working as well as it was under those conditions, I, I actually think you, we may have seen a game where Tom Brady only threw the ball three times. <clears throat> I, I fully agree. I mean, I was obsessed with Bill Belichick. Uh, I did not, you know, I spent a year with the team. I probably wouldn't have made the team. I tore my Achilles. So I had the opportunity to actually sit in a lot of meetings that I may not have been able to. He would do random things to let you know who he was all the time. He, there was a, um, there was a backup linebacker for the Packers who came out to the media. I have no idea why this was a relevant story, but it was important to Bill, so we all sat there and listened to it. And he said, hey listen, I want you guys to sit down and shut up. He put this guy up on the, on the board, he says, anybody know who this is? There was not a person in the room who knew who it was. He said, here's who it is, he's a backup linebacker for the Packers, he started five games this year, he just had an interview with the media. What do you guys think he said? And he said, well, Akib Tlaib actually was, was a star on that team. And remember, Bill said he started five games. So we sat there in silence for 10 seconds. Keep says, I don't know, start six games. Bill says, this mother effer said he's going to be defensive player of the year. Don't you ever do that to me. You <laughs> shut up. This is about our team and what we're doing here. That was the meeting. It was Bill called a meeting to talk about a backup linebacker 
for the Green Bay Packers that none of us had ever heard of. So he finds a way to make points and lets you know in not so subtle ways that you are a part of this team, this military. Remember, his dad was a coach in Navy for a long time. Yeah. He's got a military background, we'll say, in at least his attitude. And he finds ways to let you know, including, as Steve pointed out, Brady got chewed out more than once. Yeah. He sat in the chair right in front of me, and he took the brunt of it a lot. Guys. Steve, uh, go ahead. One other story about Bill Belichick when he was a young assistant under Ray Perkins. His first real big NFL job was a coordinator for the New York Giants, um, or he's a defensive assistant. I, I think he was actually running special teams. And Ray Perkins was a little bit worried about this little white guy, uh, kind of young, about could he handle men. So Ray Perkins says, I was waiting outside the special teams room, kind of spying on the meeting. And there was a veteran on the Giants name was Gary Jeter, played at USC, had a really good career, top five pick, kind of a big star. And Jeter was chirping a little bit, talking too much during the meeting. And Belichick just looks at him in the deadpan. He goes, hey, Jeter, you want to shut the up? And Perkins said, this kid's going to be okay. And the rest is history. <laughs> you know, to the, yeah. to the argument about whether or not Brady would have had the attitude to go in and only throw it three times. My answer is yes. Having been around him, I mean, he cares most about winning. He, Tom Brady would like to be the greatest athlete, considered the greatest athlete that transcends sports. We have a few. Michael Jordan, Muhammad Ali, Wayne Gretzky. He would like to be number one. He's never stopped his goal at, you know, for a long time we said, is it Peyton or Tom? Tom never considered Peyton his competition. It was Wayne mm. Gretzky and Muhammad Ali and Michael mm. Jordan. And so he thinks that by getting X number of championships, whatever that is, playing until nobody's ever played at that age, that is what he's trying to do. So the, the answer is, did he have the attitude to only throw the ball three times? Absolutely. Yes. But <clears throat> I think if, if we're actually, if you talk X's and O's in football, Julian Edelman was on any, any team that uh, Tom Brady played on on the latter part of his career. Wes Welker was on those teams, Danny Amendola. There was something called a jig route. It's a four-yard, basically extended handoff right in the middle of the field. Mm. They ran that 25 times a game. The difference between what we saw last night in the offense they're running with, with Mac Jones versus what we saw with Tom Brady is that they actually considered those guaranteed completions. So, you know, the argument itself, I think, is irrelevant. Would Tom have done that? Sure. Would he have ever been asked to? Absolutely not, because you're just as likely to complete a four-yard pass to Julian Edelman on the run, one-on-one -on -one with a linebacker, as you are to turn, turn around and hand it off to a running back. Yeah. So the argument itself, not really applicable, but I think the, the bigger point is what Jason said. Does he have pride that would get in the way of that? And the answer is absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that my respect for Belichick has always been high, even when I've been critical of him and even when I was rooting against him. And I thought that, you know, when he benched uh, the guy at the Super Bowl, Malcolm Butler, mm -hmm. and didn't give an explanation or whatever, I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. I thought it was unfair to his uh, players, and I thought – it was going to be a, mis a mistake that bit him in the rear end. Clearly, I've been proven wrong. Uh, and, and clearly, you know, he operates in a way that even, and this is a great sign of, of leadership and, and just how much respect he commands, that even when he makes a mistake, the players lose zero confidence in him. 
and stay right on board as if he hadn't made a mistake and hell probably convinced themselves <laughs> that wasn't even a mistake. You know, we didn't need Malcolm Butler and uh, it, it, and so that that he's legitimately in a positive way has those guys in a mental trance and brainwash and and I think the only way you can inspire that kind of uh, loyalty and following is if you've done so many things to where they're like, well, man, this guy in, in pursuit of winning, he doesn't have an ego. He doesn't have some misplaced pride. He's not trying to serve some other master other than winning. And that's why people buy into it. And, and I'm sure there may have been a guy or two in that locker room that were sitting there like, man, we could probably throw the ball 12 times. I'm sure there's some wide receivers in there. It's like, you know, you see Josh Allen, he's completing some passes. Mac Jones can throw some. But the guys created a culture, and, and I think it's because, you know, the, the things he actually says, he backs up with his own actions. It's not just his actions of cutting this guy or cutting that guy or, or anything. It's just, I look at the way Belichick dresses and it screams. <laughs> he has no pride. That's right. Literally. I mean, he puts on these tattered sweatshirts and all this other stuff. He just has no superficial pride about the way he looks or in any way, anything. I, I just, Steve, I'm just more Jason, impressed today with Bill Belichick than I have probably been at any point in his career. Jason, I, I'm sure you remember this, and TJ, you're a lot younger than us. Um, in 1990, when the Giants won a Super Bowl with, I thought, maybe the fourth or fifth best team at best, uh, in the NFC Championship game, he throttled a historically good San Francisco offense at the height of Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. Then the very next week, with only a week to prepare for the Super Bowl, the Buffalo Bills, with that red gun hurry up, had scored 51 points on the Raiders, and they looked unstoppable. And Bill Belichick, again, they throttled them. And this is amazing about Belichick. He actually told his defensive players going into that Super Bowl, which was famous for the Whitney Houston national anthem, hey, guys, we're going to play basically a nickel and dime set the whole game. We're going to slow down the tempo, but get this. We're going to let Thurman Thomas actually run free. He said, Thurman Thomas, if he gets 100 yards rushing, is actually good for us because it's going to slow down their offense without even knowing it. The, the guy is the Bobby Fisher of football. He looks at this game three-dimensionally more than any coach I've ever seen. And this is an interesting thing about the Patriots. There's going to be a game or two very soon that they're going to just go shotgun, spread, four wide, and they're going to let Mac Jones throw 40 times. They do this. There is no style to Bill Belichick. He literally has... 17 different game plans every single week based on different personnel and formations. He doesn't have, like, Bill Walsh was always West Coast. Buddy Ryan was always the bear front or the 46. Bill Belichick is week to week, all right, what works? It's really that simple, and that's the brilliance of Bill Belichick. I think that's exactly right. If you follow some of the history of what Belichick has done, oftentimes it's by game, which is unbelievable because you do different stuff with the same personnel. But he's always he's always zigging while they're zagging. So he saw Wes Welker playing for the Miami Dolphins. He said that will work. Then suddenly the mm. the slot was born in the NFL. Everybody started catching up, 
and go into the smaller dime packages. Okay, good. We're gonna we're gonna go draft Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez, and we're gonna run these giants against these tiny little guys, and mm. we're gonna take advantage of that. Okay, so then you get big again. Good. We're gonna go back to the slot, and we're gonna have a power run game. I mean, it's one thing after the other. The question is, how do you get away with? Obviously, you have the success, right? I, I don't know if any of this works without the success, but. We've seen a lot of, quote, dynasties over the years that have fizzled out. Pete Carroll at USC. We saw the Cowboys with Jimmy Johnson. A story that I've never forgotten with Jimmy Johnson is he, in training camp, had a, had a rookie. I don't know if he was drafted or not. I can't even remember who told me this story, but it's a true story. Rookie fell asleep in the meeting, and Jimmy Johnson made a point of going over there and mother-effing him out of the room and you never saw that guy again. And that was, he was trying to make a point, you're never gonna fall asleep, you're not doing me a favor by listening to me. Week later, Emmett Smith falls asleep in the meeting. Guess what Jimmy Johnson did? Hey buddy, wake up. <laughs> yeah. It's a different thing when you treat yeah. different people differently. Everybody says, hey, I, I'm not gonna treat you, treat you equally, I'm gonna treat you fairly, what you've yes. earned. Nice idea, Belichick doesn't subscribe to that. He's gonna mother F Tom Brady just like he's gonna mother F TJ Moe and that's why it works. Uh, Korean Cosell, I'm going to let you go. We're going to get to some of this other stuff tomorrow, actually, uh, I, I think. So uh, great job, uh, Steve Kim. Uh, we'll be back with you tomorrow. Uh, I want to tell you guys about an important story that some friends of mine, Judd Saul included, are, are telling. Enemies Within the Church is a movie that will expose all that is wrong within the Christianity today. So many people in the church have ruined it by allowing bad ideologies to grow and this film exposes it all. There are powerful forces within the evangelical community that do not want you to see this. Enemies within the church will truly show everyone who the bad actors within the community are and how money has helped spread these subversive ideologies within the church today. Every Christian and patriot needs to see this film and then share with everyone that you know. I encourage you to go buy the DVD or purchase the pay-per-view streaming at enemieswithinthechurch.com. That's enemieswithinthechurch.com. My good friend Judd Saul is involved with this. It's a must-see. All right, stick around. We got more Fearless with Jason Whitlock. Are you miserable? Haven't been on a date in years? Are you still upset that the cool kids bullied you in junior high school? Mixed race and yearning for the street cred of the homies? Or maybe you're just an angry, radicalized woman who lacks the skills and allure that Kamala Harris used to attract a Willie Brown. Hi, my name is Dr. Van Jones. I am the head of DIE for the Alphabet Mafia. D-I-E stands for diversity, inclusion, and equity. Die. Does that sound fun? If you're bitter about your life, you're mad about the way God made you, and you're a total loser, then you are a prime candidate to become a made man or made woman in the Alphabet Mafia. You want to know more about us? We're a for-profit coalition of organizations funded by George Soros. We're Black Lives Matter, LGBTQ, and critical race theory, all rolled into one. We burn and loot cities, we redefine marriage, and we're also in the process of redefining and expanding gender identities. If you have a writing flair, you would be a good fit at the New York Times. 
We're rewriting history and we're helping Americans understand that this country is a massive failure. Do you have a violent criminal history? Maybe you've done time in prison for pedophilia, rape, maybe even some domestic violence, and you can't find the right job in corporate America? No problem. At DIE, you're a perfect candidate to loot, burn, and terrorize black communities. You could be the next Joseph Rodenbaum. So don't miss your chance to kill America. Call us right now at 1-800-555-MARA. That's 1-800-555. Let's all make America racist again. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, I'm very excited uh, for this next interview. Listen, we've interviewed, you know, some athletes and legendary athletes on this show, but I I tend to be friends with those guys, and so I know them all fair very well. And so I'm about to say something that you guys may not believe, but it's actually authentic. This is the best interview and the one I'm looking forward to the most because John McWhorter, a professor at uh, Columbia University, is one of the smartest people in America and one of the most thoughtful and important voices talking about race and culture in America. I've followed his work for a long time. I followed his work even before I was even cognizant of whose work I was following. And so I would read, this was years ago, I would read things and go, man, this is really smart. This is John McWhorter, and then I'd read something else and not put it together that I'm like reading the same guy. John's written like 22 books. He's been published virtually everywhere that uh, in it, from the New York Times to any place where you can be published and be seen as a thoughtful writer. I've read his stuff for a long time. He's got a new book called Woke Racism that everyone needs to read because he's making the point that I certainly believe that race and the discussion of racism has become the new religion in America and and not as a joke. That's That's not some hypothetical analogy. Race and racism and anti-racism and uh, Ibram X. Kendi and Ta-Nehisi Coates and Robin DiAngelo, these are all high priestesses in this new religion that we got going on. And so uh, John also does uh, a very popular and profound podcast with Glenn Lowry uh, from Brown University. These guys need more spotlight uh, on them. And so I'm glad to share a little bit of mine with John, but it's also going to be interesting for me to get to know John a little bit better through this interview. So that's I've never given a two minute introduction of any guest, but uh, John McWhorter deserves it. And so, John, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's been too long. As a matter of fact, it has been. Yeah. Go ahead. It's, right. This is our first I was just public say, engagement. Met. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we've I, we've talked briefly, I think, on the phone at one point when I finally put it together. Like, hold on, man, this same dude keeps writing all this stuff that I <laughs> I keep it. <laughs> anyway, 
I want to start there in terms of, because this is a continuation of one of the first questions I asked you when, when we first connected is, why aren't you as popular in mainstream America as Ta-Nehisi Coates or Ibram X. Kendi? How come you're not on every talk show, the lead voice, you, either you or Glenn Lowry, the lead voice or one of the leading voices on race on every television network in America? Well, Jason, I can tell you that if anybody offered me what you just mentioned and said that I could be on every talk show and be the leading voice, I would have to turn it down because I have never wanted that particular position. But I know what you're asking, and it's because a certain kind of educated white person really gets off on a black writer telling them that they're racist. And that's because we've come so far that people want to examine themselves for their racism. They want to show the world that they know that racism is bad, including that it's almost hard to be a human being who doesn't have some of it in them. And so it means that a white person exists who really likes a rather dour black writer, it's usually a male, telling them what bigots they are. That's not me. And so as far as the sorts of people who determine who gets on all those talk shows, et cetera, not that I feel like I'm being denied exposure, but in terms of what you're talking about, that would never be a me because I don't have that message and I'm not going to. So that's why, because there's this idea that flagellating yourself about your racism is a form of spiritual advancement. And maybe it is, but I have different interests in terms of what I want to foster out there. So in reading up and preparing to talk to you today, I, I saw something where you still call yourself and consider yourself a liberal. Mm -hmm. Is that true? And if so, why? Mm -hmm. why? Why do you classify yourself still as a liberal? Because I come from the tradition that stresses that we're improving things, that the idea is not to stick with what's going on in the past. I believe in progress. I am a good progressive. And I believe in the notion of the individual and am suspicious of the conception of groups and identity politics and basically sanding down people's individuality into these group conceptions. All of that is what would have been considered a liberal in 1960, a black liberal in 1960. It's not that I'm a conservative. It's that this idea has settled in that for black people, the normal view is radical, that we've just got to blow it all up and start again because racism is so deeply set into society. It's kind of like in a Looney Tune with that thing where you have that, you push it down and it blows things up. I don't know what that's called or whether it still exists, but there's that perspective. Ever since the late 60s, the idea has been that normal black thought is that and that anything that is to the right of that is conservative. You're automatically Booker T. Washington. I disagree, and I do insist that I'm a liberal. I've never voted Republican. Not that I absolutely couldn't. I don't think it's likely anytime soon. But yeah, I'm a good liberal. It's the rest of black America who moved, not me. Okay, that, that's fascinating that you never, that you would never vote Republican. And so haven't that means voted you voted for, haven't. Does that mm -hmm. mean you voted for Joe Biden? 
And if so, do you regret that? Mm -hmm. I voted for Joe Biden without enthusiasm because I considered Donald Trump to be an utter and complete and contemptible disaster. And his racism was only a small part of it. I went with the choice. But to show you where my vote really goes, 20 years ago, I could not bear to vote for Al Gore because I frankly felt that nothing he was saying had anything to do with really improving black lives. And I voted for Ralph Nader. And look how that went. And so I've been less inclined to vote that way since then. But yeah. Now, if there were a sensible Republican who came along and offered more for black people than the Democrats did, then I would be fine. And so, for example, if I could roll the tape back, and this is one of those ridiculous hypotheticals, but George W. Bush did an awful lot wrong when his presidency became all about adventures overseas that were complete disasters. But when his administration opened, a lot of people thought I was a Republican because I supported the faith-based initiatives. No child left behind looked like a grand promise then, even if we now know with hindsight that it had its problems. He was really trying to work for black America and I saluted him for it. I did not step away just because they were dirty old Republicans. I didn't think of it that way and I don't think of it that way now. Although, of course, the Republican Party has taken some sinister turns since 20 years ago. But I think you know what I mean. You said something there interesting in terms of the faith-based initiatives you supported from George W. Bush. But I think I read you're an atheist. Is that that accurate? I sure am. Mm -hmm. But most people aren't. (laughs) And to the extent that that kind of faith helps turn black communities around, as far as I'm concerned, great, support it. If those black pastors were in a position to change America's inner cities, I was all for it, whatever my religious views are. And so that was, when I read that, I was shocked when I read like, oh, John McWhorter's an atheist. I I was not aware of that. And, And you just, The other thing in this interview that I find interesting is that I'm surprised John McWhorter's positions aren't arguing what's best for America as opposed to what's best for black America. Because most people, I think I would argue that what's best for America will serve black people really well. And so I don't have to look for someone to do what's best for black America. I need to look for someone who will do what's best for America and I will be served during that. Yeah, I agree with you, but there's an issue of branding, which is that I will get behind the sorts of things that will help America and where black people will be included. And so, for example, I say that there shouldn't be racial preferences, there should be socioeconomic preferences. A lot of people have a problem with that because they think too many white people would get help. And as far as I'm concerned, there are a lot of white people who need that kind of help just as much as almost all black people did 50 years ago. And so as far as I'm concerned, that would be you know a rising tide that helps all boats. But I also stress that doing it by socioeconomics would help black people still disproportionately. We're just talking about black people who grow up disadvantaged as opposed to say me, where I figure the whole thing has just gotten out of proportion and had even by the time I was in my 20s in the 80s 
and the 90s. And so, yeah, I know what you mean. I think that ultimately what's going to save black America are going to be policies that help everybody. But we have to talk about how they're going to help black America because there is this dialogue and you have to work with what you're given. There are an awful lot of people who it would be very hard to bring along if they weren't thinking of it as about black people as opposed to about everybody. And so it's just a matter of how much you think you can change the way people think. And there are an awful lot of people where they want to hear about the black part. And so I'm going to stress it, too, because I do think about it more than America as a whole. I'm concerned with all people, but there is an abstractness to what this thing called America is. You need to have a gut feeling as a human being. I think we see that all the time. We see it in the way so many white people have adopted this religion of showing one another that they know what racism is. It gives them a sense of belonging. Talk about faith. If you don't have that, which a lot of the white people in question don't, then you end up having a substitute faith. People are tribal, and I'm not sure we can get past that. So I think about black issues as opposed to American issues, because that's our, that's our flabby humanity. You know, I mean, mine. That's the way I do it. If you can get beyond that, Jason, you're, you're, you're better than me. I mean, I mean that. You are a more clinical person than I'm capable of being. I can't do it. Well, I would probably say, uh, and I wouldn't say probably, I'm a more faithful person than you. I have a strong belief in Jesus and the power of Christianity and faith. And, and I believe that, again, if we do what's best for America and take the founding documents, regardless of what you think of the writers of it, the founding documents are sound and serve us all. And that the thing that made America great is that black people's pursuit of freedom forced America to live up to those founding documents. And that's what actually was the steroids that made America, our pursuit of freedom and what it forced America to do. Oh, you say all men are created equal? We're gonna make you live up to that. And so the things embedded in those founding documents, I think do serve us. And, and we've just gotten off course because I believe, and I think part of your argument with woke racism is that these guys want to overturn the founding documents and rewrite everything and, and paint the picture that America is this massive failure and it has been since its inception and there's no way with these founding documents it can ever not be a failure. And so, but I don't want to interpret woke racism. I'm going to let you, what is the point that you're trying to make with your latest book, Woke Racism? Well, I would say in response to what you're saying that I agree completely in that there's a certain kind of person and these people have major influence. It's people connected to academia and the media. Those are the loudest voices in the country. They feel that it's all been a mistake, that American history has basically been just this massive crime spree. And that's an interesting idea. It's a very charismatic idea. And you know, to an extent they might be right. But what I'm missing in their argument is what they would replace it with. And so if we, for example, decenter whiteness what exactly is the blackness that we're supposed to be centering? If we're going to have perfect equity, then what about the fact that racism in the past has meant that there aren't as many black people qualified to be equitous in some things as others? And can you really not have that discussion 
at all. So woke racism is basically about the fact that black America, and with respect to what you're saying, America in general, but black America has some specific problems that need to be solved. And an awful lot of people have developed a sideline, a detour of thinking the way we're going to deal with that is to talk about how racism is baked into the system. It's baked into our psychologies. And we need to sit around and talk about that before anything good can happen to black America. And at best, what we have to do is undo everything and create equity because all of black people's problems are due to something called systemic racism, which must be undone. I don't think that any of that makes actual sense from A to B to C. It's not about helping people on the ground. It's about sitting around talking about things that aren't perfect, sitting around talking about how history sucks, which it almost always does, as opposed to dealing with the here and the now. So I'm just trying to set us on track to actually making things that work, as opposed to having elevated discussions that are all about white people showing that they're guilty, and us telling them that it's good that they're guilty and that it helps us feel redeemed. I don't see that as civil rights. John, you use a term a lot uh, called the elect. And I remember when you wrote a whole column defining the elect and I I read it. And so I I would like for you to tell us what you mean by who are the elect and, and why are they perhaps problematic? The elect are people not just woke. The elect are people who feel that battling differentials in power especially white people's power, should be the center of everything that we think, everything that we like, everything that we do, all the effort that we put forth. It's all about battling power differentials. Now, all of us understand that that's important on some level, but we think of battling power differentials as one of maybe 25 things that you might think about as you go through this thing called life. But for these people, that's the center. And if you're not battling white power, so to speak, This kind of person feels that you are so wrong, you are so behind the curve, that you should be fired if you disagree, that you should be mocked on social media as a white supremacist if you disagree, that you are not fit to break bread with. And the important thing is that you wake me up in the middle of the night, I'm talking about a white person. There are plenty of black people who join this. You've already mentioned some of them. But really, this is a white, black, Asian, Latino, everything phenomenon. It's all the people speaking for us, including a lot of us. That kind of person used to be somebody you mainly encountered as one kind of academic, as one kind of media person, as the occasional firebrand community activist. It was just one person at the table. But as of after George Floyd, that kind of person started calling the shots. Everybody's afraid of that kind of person because if you don't do what they say in our times of racial reckoning, then you get called a white supremacist on Twitter and these people try to get you fired, to use a a shorthand, but that's what they do and they've been doing it now for almost two years. And those are the elect. They don't know of themselves as a group, they don't think of it that way, but they founded a new religion based on this issue that battling power differentials is the way that you show your faith. And I think these people are well-meaning, but they are really dangerous because they can't be reasoned with on these issues. And they hurt black people in the name of helping us. How does anti-racism work just like any other religion? How does it manifest itself just like any other religion? You chase out the heretic, 
instead of trying to have a discussion with the heretic. You beat yourself up for having original sin, except under this religion, it's called white privilege. There is a point beyond which you're not questions because you're supposed to suspend logic to an extent. So to take a quick example, you're in a black community that's underserved. You are much, much more likely to be killed by somebody five blocks away than you are by a stray white cop, much more likely. But our discussion is mainly about the stray white cop because that discussion allows you to talk about racism. Whereas if you get killed by somebody who lives five blocks away, they're the same color you are. So we have this barbaric situation where people being killed is painful to their families and friends, no matter who did it. But we consider it much, much more important when it happens to be a white cop rather than someone else, as if the mother mourning the child feels any differently in the two situations. A 10-year-old would say, why aren't we more concerned with the violence within the neighborhood than what the very occasional cop does? And notice, you're not supposed to ask the question at all, or if anybody does answer the question, it's with deep anger. They wish you hadn't asked. They think it's obvious, which it is to them. If it's not about racism, it's not really worth talking about nearly as much. And so that's the equivalent of that you're not supposed to ask too many questions about miracles. You're not supposed to ask too many questions about why God allows bad things to happen. There's an extent to which with religion, you're supposed to have faith and you're supposed to let logic go. Now, with Christianity, that creates a lot of beauty. But with the elect religion, that creates utter neglect of real black people leading real lives, where a priest, in a way, says, thou shalt look at this and not that. And if anybody asks questions, they get wrapped on the knuckles by a nun, so to speak. That's not the way civil rights was supposed to operate. John, one of the things you just said there about Christianity and creates a lot of beauty, uh, you've let you driven me to a point that I've made many times and you're the perfect person to ask this question to because you're a non-believer. It sounds like you agree with me that like a Judeo-Christian culture or a Christian culture in particular serves the non-believer just as much as the believer. It creates a culture and a society that even if you're a non-believer, the values actually work for the non-believers and allow them to experience freedom and opportunity and all the things that America has to offer. You agree with that? Yeah, I do. I mean, when you're talking about the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's led to an awful lot of very important things, and it can be foundational to a coherent and constructive community. Now, despite that in the wake of this book, a lot of people's favorite thing to say about it is that it's not really a religion. I'm sorry. Yes, it is. What we've seen is something that a naive anthropologist would see as a religion just like all the others. The only question is what kind of a religion. I'm worried that the new religion is not one that promises to form a coherent community, such as, for example, forgiveness. You know, there's a such thing as a religion having room for forgiveness, whereas with electism, it's all about being prosecutorial. There's no such thing as forgiving. It's considered beyond the pale, so to speak. The community that the elect want to create, frankly, they don't have much of a sense of what the future would be. They're, they're focused on tearing down the present. But it wouldn't be anything along the lines of the loving, ethically considered community 
that has cult that has sprung up around, for example, the Abrahamic religions. It's a very worrisome thing because this religion really does want to take over America's thinking culture. And what would that actually look like to all of us, except for the very few people who truly are adherents to this, but who scare the rest of us into pretending that we agree? John, do you ever talk right much about the popularity of Marxism and and uh, particularly among the founders, the self-trained Marxists within Black Lives Matter. What do you say to people like me that's like, a lot of this stuff I'm seeing from the far left is actually imposing of a Marxist ideology and culture throughout America that's gonna lead to communism and socialism and all the oppression that springs from that? Oh yeah, that's a fine line. I mean, a lot of this is an extreme discomfort with the fact that talents are unequally distributed, that some people, because of either individual capabilities or just chance, are going to get further than other people. And that also the way humanity seems to naturally arrange itself, if we just look at history, is that some people are more powerful than others. Stratification seems to be almost inevitable when people come together in numbers larger than about 500. I think that's a fair anthropological statement. It's perfectly reasonable to think that we go wrong once we get beyond being groups of a few hundred people living by the side of a river. All of us can understand Rousseau if we read him. But the question is whether we really can roll the tape back. And the Marxist will always say that the real thing was never tried. And that may be true, but it's also true that the real thing never could be tried here in this world where there would always be the temptation of other kinds of societies. But what the elect want is a highly idealized situation where qualifications such as we think of them are irrelevant. And rather what we're interested in is just for people depending on their skin color to be equally distributed according to their proportion in society. Now, how you do that with, say, physics as it's currently constituted, well, that's kind of hard. And for the elect, what that means is that you transform what it means to be a good physicist so that just about anybody can join. All of that, again, you, you can wrap your head around how that might be the solution to the world's problems. But deciding that that's the way to do it is something only the very occasional person is going to find attractive. And I want to say once again that when I think of this kind of person, they are white as often as black. I am not making anti-black statements here, frankly, but anti-human, if you want to call it that. And the problem is most of the rest of us pretend to agree with this stuff often because we don't want to get fired. We don't, we don't want to be called a white supremacist on Twitter. But these are not the people to walk around scared of because if they get their way, it is rather as if they want to try something as unlikely to truly work out as Marxism and then claim that what they really wanted was never actually tried, which is exactly what they would say. John, here's where we have a little disconnect. And, and, and again, I, I was aware of it going into the interview and, and, and it, that's why I kind of, I marvel at like how much respect that I have for your point of view, how much of the things you say are just like, my God, this guy is saying what I'm saying, what I say and believe, but you're saying it at an Ivy League level. And when I hear you talk about the elect, I, I go to the elite and I am an anti-elite. 
I, I am, uh, my dad didn't graduate high school. My mother was a 30 year factory worker. Uh, my parents divorced when I was four or five years old. We started out in the ghetto. When my parents divorced, I went deeper into the ghetto. My mother took a second job, moved me and my brother out to a little working class. They call it a suburb at that time or whatever. It was a working class neighborhood. And then my mother moves and I move back in with my dad and we're back in the ghetto, 100, 400 square foot apartment in the hood. And I wasn't a great student. Being a college, being a, high school, a great high school football player got me a college football scholarship that, you know, at Ball State University, not an Ivy League type school. And I graduated college with a 2.3. No one expected me to do a damn thing in life other than, you know, mid-level accountant or, you know, just anyway, no one thought I'd be a journalist of any renown or anything like that. And so my worldview is very working class, very working class. And I've made a lot of money and, and had TV shows and been popular, but my worldview remains very working class and where you and I have some disconnect and where I'd like for you to help me understand. So when I heard, and I've never voted also, so I, I don't involve, I try to keep a distance from politics. Uh, but when I heard Donald Trump's 2016 inauguration speech, I was like, oh my God, this, this man is speaking directly to me and directly to my mother, the factory worker, he's talking about manufacturing jobs and people like my parents who really weren't interested in college and how they could have good jobs and still push their kids ahead. And I just, the racism that keeps being attributed to Donald Trump, I just haven't been able to find. And so, Help me understand, and maybe it's because I'm working class and I'm not politically correct. I don't teach at an Ivy League university. I'm not in the world that, that y'all are in. And so people saying not politically correct things, people saying things that uh, are profane or whatever, it just, it just doesn't hit me the same way. I struggle to see this out and out racism and danger of Donald Trump. And I know he's a wealthy elite or whatever. And so I, I just kind of like attributed it to like, man, maybe in these Ivy League circles, the stuff he says sounds bad. But my father owned a bar in the inner city that catered to factory workers. And I've been saying since 2016, when Donald Trump got elected, I was like, he sound like the dudes, and this was an all-black environment at the Masterpiece Lounge. He sound like the dudes at the Masterpiece Lounge. He sounds like my uncle, and uh, he sounds like my daddy and his friends. So help me understand what I'm missing about this rampant racism of Donald Trump and even his supporters. <laughs> Jason, there was a lot in there, and I'm going to take yeah this opportunity to say something that I don't usually get into. I think a lot of people think, and I would think this about me if I weren't myself. A lot of people think I'm Carlton on Fresh Prince. A lot of people think that, you know, I teach at an Ivy League school, I talk in this snotty way. I must have grown up, you know, with, you know, two 
you know, professor, parents, or something like that. And I completely missed what you're talking about. Not, not true. I grew up middle, middle class, not lower middle class, but middle. It was fragile. And my parents' financial circumstances fell to pieces around when I graduated from college and, and never came back. Both of them had grown up, I guess you would say, working class with my father, definitely maybe lower middle class with my mother. But all of their relatives, except for a few when I was little, were you know working class people and time has gone by and people of my generation are now various classes. But I grew up amidst people who were nothing like Carlton. I didn't grow up in that kind of environment. I got my BA from Rutgers. Rutgers is a great school now. It was not that great a school in 1985. I'm not an Ivy League product at all. And I know people aren't going to believe this, but when I was 20, 21, nobody thought much was going to come of me either. Nobody thought I was going to be a factory worker. But about the best anybody thought was going to come from me was that I was going to maybe be a high school French teacher. That's all my mother thought I was going to be. Nobody expected me to be wherever I am today. I did not impress people. I was thought of as kind of a prissy, smart-mouthed guy. But nobody thought that was going to get me any kind of renown. So I hear what you're talking about. And when I talk about black people, I'm not thinking about some assistant black professor. I'm always thinking about those guys on the bar stool that you're talking about. I'm talking about black people out in the real world who may have problems, who may need help. To me, that's the real thing. And as such, with all of that said, Donald Trump's racism, I don't really care that much about it. I've said some colorful things about it with Don Lemon on TV, and I felt those things because Donald Trump is not somebody I'd have in my house. I do think he's, he's a bigot like Archie Bunker. He thinks black people are kind of dumb. He thinks black people don't try hard enough. He's one of those. In that, he's not unique, though, especially among you know white guys of his generation and education level. Frankly, he's, and I mean, I know he has certain formal educational credentials, but please. So really, you know, yeah, he, he's a genteel bigot. My problem with Donald Trump was that he had no business being president for about 99 other reasons. So as long as he is not interfering with black progress, and frankly, his administration wasn't really about much of anything, and so we couldn't say, then fine with me. I'm not horrified by the state of his soul regarding black folk. There were other things that worried me much more about him. I, I, I hear you on that, I, and so I just want to go a cut deeper and, and, and try to understand from my perspective, take the Masterpiece Lounge, my father's best friends, Dog Ballard, William Ballard, Baby John, and uh, you know, these guys are past, so I can, and my dad's past, and uh, Uncle Wes, I'm just, all of, and these guys are heroes to me. All factory working, working class guys. I'm just telling you, no different than Donald Trump. Any, the things you said about, Donald Trump thinking X, Y, and Z about black people. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that, that's certainly your perception. I do know that my dad and his friends had a lot of inappropriate thoughts about white people and weren't shy about saying them, weren't shy, you know, me and my dad, 
and I'm talking, I love my dad. My dad was one of the, he didn't graduate high school, one of the smartest, most wise people, one of the best people I know. But my dad was a racist and, uh, you know, had problems with a couple of my dating choices and th <laughs> things like that as it related to crossing. He didn't mind you crossing state lines, but he didn't like you crossing white lines. Uh, <laughs> and and mm -hmm. so I get, that's where I go to like, and I'm not justifying anyone's bigotry, but I'm saying that like most people, regardless of color, have some sort of racial bias Black people have it, white people have it. And so for me, I, I authentically sit and go, Trump supporters, they remind me a lot of like the guys at the Masterpiece Lounge. And if I'm given a choice between hanging out with some Hollywood celebrities or some really rich elites of any color or hanging out with the people at the Masterpiece Lounge, it's a real easy choice for me. I love them people at the Masterpiece Lounge. And if I'm given a choice between hanging out with Trump supporters or some Hollywood super elites, it's an easy choice for me. These elites, the elect that you like to talk, I call them elites or whatever, they scare me. They don't have working class values. And so I, I, I just, I think that, and I think part of woke racism and a lot of things I hear from you is we've used this racial discussion to clutter up a discussion of far more important things or to distract from far more important things. And we can never get to like the real issues. And you made the analogy and made the point that I, because uh, I'll just add this, you, you probably don't know this about me, John McWhorter, but I had a cousin that I helped raise, Anton Butler. He was killed by the police in 2012 in Indianapolis. Didn't make national news. It was black sheriffs that did it. They tasered him, electrocuted him basically in the rain. It, it, it's, it's, so the whole police engagement, it's a real issue to me. But because of the way that I grew up, I know that Junebug and Ray Ray from the Gangster Disciples and the Crips and the Bloods pose a far bigger threat <laughs> to me and all my family and everybody else in the hood. And so I, I guess I just say all that to say this whole discussion of race and racism, we can't even, it stops us from talking about what's really important. And so when I would hear Trump, all I would care about is like, okay, how are we gonna get manufacturing jobs back so that people like my parents could do what my parents did? All this discussion of whether or not he likes black people, wants to hang out with them. Trust me, my father, my uncles, and they, people at the mass, they don't wanna hang out with Trump. They're not worried about him <laughs> not wanting to hang out with them. So anyway, if you could respond to any of that, I don't even know if there's a great question there. No, there, there. I hear all of that, and I mean, you know, here from this you know, Ivy League, I know that some people watching this would say that um, it's different with the guys at the lounge because they're punching up. Racism is when you're punching down. But I'll go you one more. Think about. I know the guys you mean. You, I, for me, it would be the high hat lounge, or you know, 
it's Thanksgiving or it's some summer day and it's all the men who go down to the basement and it's about 1974 and they're playing pinochle and drinking whiskey. And to tell you the truth, it's not only that they don't like white people, but a lot of those Trumpy things that we're talking about that he thinks about black people, some of those guys would say that about black people. I think you know exactly what I mean there. And so if they are thinking all that, well, then if Donald Trump is thinking it, I know um, it's supposed to be worse because he's white, but it all kind of comes out in the wash to an extent when you're thinking about, yeah, how can you get the manufacturing jobs back? Or if that's not coming back, for me, it's how do you get, I haven't heard Junebug and Ray Ray in 20 years, but it's always those two names. Junebug and Ray Ray, how do you get them vocational training so that they stop doing what they do? That's my main issue. So I hear you completely on everything you said. What do you do about all of this? And yes, the guys playing pinochle and, and, and having whiskey in the basement, they don't want to hang out with Donald Trump. So what's what's the issue? That is an elite conversation about how we're supposed to be appalled at what that man is thinking and what its implications won't be. Nobody in the basement, nobody at the barbecue gives a good goddamn. And in that, I think, frankly, they're right. So how do we or is there any hope of changing discussion? Because when I turn on corporate television or whatever, I almost never see anybody representing my point of view, representing the point of view at the Masterpiece Lounge. I see, and again, it drives me crazy and it's a stereotype, but I I see Ivy League Negroes uh, that don't have any clue what it's actually like to live in a black community. And, and, and I want to just shake them and say, my father carried a 38 revolver every day that I knew him. And it was never to fend off the police. When he pulled it out, there was usually a young black man trying to do something to him and he was stopping them. And I never hear any Van Jones, Angela Rye, Joy Reid. I never hear any of them. Like, have y'all spent any time in the black community? And, and do you have the balls or the courage to express what people really think in those communities? Will this ever change? You know, I think it will. I actually think it will. And I think it's partly because of the fragmentation of the media. And so, you know, for example, you know, taking Ta-Nehisi Coates randomly, although he doesn't seem to be that interested anymore. Yeah, he people like that are always going to be the rock stars. You know, his replacement is Ibram Kendi. Yeah, that's always going to be there. But I don't think that the alternate voices are as suppressed as they used to be. For example, I don't feel muzzled. I, I have to say it. I write for the New York Times and I think what I think and a lot of people, I make them quite sick. And yet the New York Times is taking a gamble on me. And as you know, there are other me's and Glenn Lowry can talk about what it's like to grow up. You know, for example, on the south side of Chicago, he can talk about revolvers. I don't have that story. It was a middle class neighborhood, no revolvers. But still, I think that it's changing slowly. I think there's a pushback. I think there's a hunger out there for a story other than that same one that you keep hearing. And, you know, it's easier to allow that change happens 
than to it's a, no, sorry that's not the expression it's easier to think change doesn't happen than to allow that it happens slowly this is a slow change i think but i think that the racial reckoning of 2020 and the excesses that it created i think it's created what the elect are going to think of as a backlash a racist backlash but really it's just people pushing towards some sort of reality and some sort of nuance i think it's it's happening i compare 10 years ago with now and I think that the people you're talking about do not completely suck all the air out of the room the way they used to. Social media gives exposure to a wider range of voices, including yours. I really do think that. I, I, this may be a, a petty question, but I, I want to ask it just because I'm interested. Uh, I want your thoughts. Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ibram X. Kendi. Is, is one more dangerous than the other? I totally agree with you. I, I see Ibram X. Kendi as like the knockoff Gucci bag of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Uh, for some reason, Ta-Nehisi, I guess, got tired of lying, and so they brought in Ibram X. Kendi to do an impersonation, but m maybe I'm not reading Ibram very closely because I don't read him. I used to read Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, but now I'm bored. But is, is either one of them more dangerous or more poisonous than the other? Yeah, and I try to talk about both of them as little as possible because he just looks small. But um, Kendi is more of a problem because he doesn't know it. It's not He's not trying to be a malevolent force. He thinks of himself as a force for good, like all people do. But he is teaching America that all of black problems are due to something called systemic racism, and that the solution is to undo the systemic racism. And by solutions, he means things like eliminate things such as standardized tests. He means things such as completely change hiring practices in order to create equity, regardless of what qualifications are, change what you think of as qualifications, that. And I think you and I both know that there has been that kind of person. Often you see them in you know, black studies departments. There, there's a certain kind of community activist who thinks that way. He's not new in that sense, but a lot of people think it's their job to pretend that all of that makes sense. And social media can give somebody like that a reach that they didn't have before, including that after the pandemic, during the pandemic, it became normal to do talks on your laptop and to have those talks count as the same thing as going somewhere live. And what that meant technologically is that you can go somewhere every day. And that means that you can have an influence much beyond what you could have when you actually had to get on a plane. And he happens to have fallen into his influence exactly when that pandemic happened and made that possible. So notice, I'm not trying to make him out to be some sort of malevolent devil, but I think his ideas potentially set us backwards in a way that Ta-Nehisi Coates didn't. And from what I hear you saying, Yes, Ta-Nehisi Coates is the more reflective person. Um, neither one of them are great at answering questions. You know, they're used to proclaiming, and then if somebody asks a, a real question, they're a little bit uneasy. Kendi is offended if you ask a real question. Coates is just a little bit thrown because he's not used to it. But, you know, neither one of them are evil. Um, I had my major impatience with Coates at the time. But, yeah, Kendi is more of a problem, not because he's a, a bad person, but because of our technological moment and the kind of influence that it allows someone like him to have. That's my, my true feeling. We'll end on a more positive note. 
And, and I, I would like for you to, I don't know, just explain to people why Glenn Lowry is, is such a formidable, uh, important voice. And, and, and just if you could just give us a brief, because I, I did not know he was from the south side of Chicago, but I, I really have a lot of respect for what you two guys do. And then so if you could just talk a little bit about Glenn Lowry and then also maybe point us to perhaps some people we should be reading beyond you and Glenn Lowry uh, who are, are doing a good job. Maybe there's some voices out there we haven't recognized either through podcast or their writing. Uh, and, and I just and that we'll end on that note. And I just want to thank you for this time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. I really appreciate it. It's, it's overdue. Um, Glenn is a genius because he can go from the street to the Ivy League in, you know, in a second. It's just he's like a, a well-tuned automobile. He can argue from both sides of any question. He can do it in the, the demotic vernacular, the masterpiece lounge vernacular. He can do it in a way that would go over in a Harvard conference room and everything in between. And in terms of what you should be reading other than, well, you know, whatever I've done, uh, you have upcoming (laughs) books. Coleman Hughes has a book coming out probably in about a year and a half. And you should read him because he's the youngest of, you know, the sort of contrarian heterodox black contingent that apparently I belong to. Glenn has a memoir coming out and people should read his memoir because his life is as important in terms of what he's done as the biographical writings of say Coates and Kennedy. They give us a lot about their lives. Thomas Chatterton Williams has another book coming out soon. He should be read. Chloe Valdery is, I don't know if Chloe is doing a book. She might be, but I don't know. But she has really interesting ideas beyond the usual, yes, we can't orthodoxy. And everybody should look her up online because she has a really interesting philosophy of healing that, frankly, is much more insightful than a lot of what passes for it. So those are the things that people should be looking at. There's just more than what you might think of as the default. And you should read the default, too. It's not as if those people don't have good ideas, but it's just that neither they nor I nor anybody else can cover the full range of legitimate thought. That's the thing, legitimate thought. And that's something that we always need to think about. Thank you, John. Everyone should get the book, Woke Racism. He's got 21 other books. You should get those too. Uh, <laughs> you're watching me and listening to the show on youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hopefully you're listening over Apple or the podcast. Give me that five-star review. Uh, you know what? Uh, after having John McCorder on, Delano actually has a challenger as the smartest man on the show today. Uh, but I think Delano will do okay. Delano's written a new column. Delano Squires, next! Welcome back. Uh, let me tell you guys about uh, our new sponsor, Sweatflock. Look, as you guys can see, I'm a big guy, and big guys like myself, we tend to get a little bit sweaty, whether we're playing sports or delivering blazing fires on TV, we can get messy. And the last thing we want is to have big, ugly sweat rings showing up on our clothes. 
That's why I use Sweatblock. Sweatblock is stronger than the normal antiperspirants, and more importantly, it's more effective. Plus, there's a dry shirt guarantee. If Sweatblock doesn't keep you dry, you get your money back. Not only is it doctor recommended, but it's made right here in the good old US of A. If you or someone you love is dealing with this issue, you gotta check out Sweatblock. Get it today for 20% off at sweatblock.com with the promo code FEARLESS. That's sweatblock.com, promo code FEARLESS. Sweatblock supports me, you, and our point of view. You need to support Sweatblock. All right, time for the smartest man on the show who actually has a little competition today. He's following in behind uh, John McWhorter. Uh, Delano Squires, Professor D. Uh, Delano, I was hoping, did you get to catch any of John McWhorter's conversation with me? I, 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 I thought it was fascinating. Did, did, first, I don't know how much of it you caught, but what, what was your biggest takeaway? I, I caught most of the conversation. Um, I'm a big John McWhorter fan. Um, read a number of his books going back to college when I read his um, book, Authentically Black, at the same time that I read Michael Eric Dyson's book on Bill Cosby. So, you know, it was good sort of comparing those two. So, yeah, I caught most of the conversation. I'm familiar with his work and his um, sort of uh, explanation of the, the elect and uh, wokeness as a new religion. Um, I generally agree with, with his points. The, the one thing that I would say and, and where I would sort of press his point a little bit more, and, and this is particularly resonant as a Christian, is that um, he mentioned forgiveness. But again, I, I'll, I'll take it a step further. The, the, the one thing that this religion misses that many others, and particularly Christianity, has is that it's the wrath of its gods is never fully and finally satisfied. So in Christianity, a person will say, acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner. And um, they would repent. They, they would believe that, you know, if they trust Jesus Christ to forgive their sins, that they are in fact saved and will have eternal life with the God of all creation for eternity to come. In this religion, and he talked about the original sin being white privilege, or and some may extend that to be whiteness itself is, is the original sin. Um, there's no way, and the, the woke, the left, offer no path to that type of full and final um, forgiveness. So it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how much money you pay. It doesn't matter um, how much you genuflect, how many black folks' feet you wash how bad you say you are, how, um, how much you criticize your own family and you trash them to strangers and say, yo, yeah, my family down south, they're a bunch of rubes, they're a bunch of rednecks, but I'm, I'm one of the good white people. It doesn't matter how much of that you do, at the end of the day, to the people practicing this new religion, you will always be guilty. And that's why it seems as if their wrath only ever increases and that every new act of, um, as I said, genuflection from the culture at large, right? So 
last year during the, you know, after George Floyd was killed, you see, for instance, professional sports leagues painting Black Lives Matter on courts and on baseball mounds. That didn't do it. The same people who were angry before George Floyd was killed were angry after those displays of, you know, quote unquote, solidarity. So um, th- that would be the main thing that I would say, because, again, when when you can't ever feel as if you've been forgiven, all you do is carry around that guilt for the rest of your life. And we have seen, Jason, the ways in which unresolved guilt, uh, whether it's based on things that people have done themselves or based on their identity and things that they can't control, um, we have seen how that type of uh, guilt and shame has been wrecking our society and our culture specifically, I'd say for the better part of the last 10 to 15 years. Um, Sometimes it takes the form of people who have serious issues with their ethnic background. Sometimes it takes the form of people who have issues with their family background. Sometimes, and we've talked about, you know, people like Colin Kaepernick and, you know, f- folks of, of, of his sort, sometimes it's a fusion of both of those things. Um, and so we get to see in real time what it looks like for a person to not resolve some of those personal issues around guilt, shame, and not ever feeling as if they are fully and finally forgiven. So one of the things I found most interesting in that conversation, I want to have an outside third party uh, put its eyes and ears on what you heard from that, is when I got to asking him about Trump mm-hmm. and like saying like, man, I come from a very working class deal and I don't, you know, I can't, this, this racism y'all keep talking about with Trump, it's hard for me to see. And, and so explain it to me. And I came away from that conversation. I, I got a lot of respect, and I, I never try to uh, jam up any guests because, one, I'm a big believer in John McCorder's work, and I never. But, but what I heard from our exchange, what I would say uh, behind his back now that he's gone, <laughs> and <laughs> that's probably not the, the greatest thing in life, but. He's got to exist in these Ivy League circles. He teaches mm. at Columbia University. He runs with a, you know, elite crowd to some degree. And I, I, I loved hearing his narrative that he didn't actually come from that. But I just think there's certain things that black elites have to say and have to say about Trump in order to exist at a Columbia University, at a Brown University. And so saying that Trump is racist and blah, 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 that's like something you have to say. It's like showing ID to buy a liquor or a pack of cigarettes or whatever. It's just something you have to do because I, I just, I think when I pressed him, I didn't, he, I, I heard him say, well, you know, that's, I said that on some interviews with Don Lemon and I believe it, but there are far more important issues that I actually have a problem with Trump about. Hmm. But I have to, everybody's made it standard operating procedure. You must say, you must disavow Trump's racism. So anyway, I, what did you think of that exchange? So, so two points really quick. One, um, I totally get the, the point you're making in terms of feeling as if you know, saying that Trump is racist is one of the things that basically gets you into and keeps you in the club. 
Um, I will say this, and I, and I heard the, your last question about, you know, uh, Professor Glenn Lowry, who also teaches at an Ivy League institution, and, and sort of parenthetically, both John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry and myself are all affiliated with uh, 1776 Unites, which part of our work is countering the narrative of the 1619 Project and really um, shining a light and upholding some of the examples of uh, particularly black folks in their own communities who are empowering people to address the issues that they have in their own lives. So, um, so, so I'm fam very familiar in terms of you know their worldview and the work that they do. But Professor Lowry takes a very different position um, than John McWhorter, than Professor McWhorter, and their conversations in their conversations you can sort of see that because um, I think Glenn Lowry, you know, takes a position that Trump voters, whether particularly his working class voters are American citizens at the end of the day who also deserve representation in their government. Um, I think he has a different view in terms of the alleged racism of the former president. But what I captured in, in your comments to John McWhorter, um, and, and you, you, didn't, you didn't press this point specifically, but it sort of baked into your perspective. And it's, it's fairly simple. When you talk about the men you grew up around, in the Masterpiece Lounge and the things that they would say, and you characterize some of those things as racist, what you're doing is putting the viewpoints, the values of those men on par with any other person in society, on par with their white counterparts who may work in a different part of the factory or may who may have a different position, you know, uh, somewhere in society. Th that brings a, a, a certain type of leveling to these conversations that many people, even some of the people who um, may talk about the woke social justice warriors, so on and so on and so forth, many people don't start from that position. Many people start f actually from the position that um, white people, regardless of their economic station in life, fill a higher position in terms of uh, social status and social ordering than black folks. So whether they say it or not, they really do endorse the view that black people either can't be racist or their racism doesn't really mean as much because they, you know, um, occupy a lower level in society. And when you start from that position, then you end up using terms like punching up or punching down. If you start from the position that racism really is either ethnic hatred or ethnic partiality, right, somewhere on that spectrum, then anybody can express racist thoughts. And the things that black men of a particular age in a particular time period said about their white peers are no different than the things that their white peers are saying at the exact same time at those, as those black men. Um, I tend to hold that position, Jason, because ultimately we're all created by God and, you know, all image bearers. And if we believe that, again, racism, and, and I'm trying to use a biblical definition, defined specifically as ethnic hatred or partiality, if we believe that is in fact wrong and, and it's a sin, then that should extend a, around like a circle. It doesn't matter who's doing it. It's wrong anywhere on, you know, sort of on that, on that circle. But instead, people talk about it as if it's a straight line. So it's only wrong if it's going from white to black. It's only wrong if it's going from white to Asian or Hispanic. And it's never wrong if it's going in any of those directions back towards white people.
Yeah, I, you, you've really nailed my point and belief. And it comes, you know, perhaps it's arrogance or perhaps it's just the Jimmy Whitlock, my father and me. But <laughs> I, I've never spent one moment in my life thinking that white people were better than me. And mm. I, I never saw my father in any engagement with anybody uh, think just, he didn't have a high school diploma, but he was a businessman. He dressed immaculately. He, you know, took care of himself. And he took, he, he felt just as important as anybody that he engaged with. And mm. that's the way I feel. And so I think of my father and the guys that hung out the Masterpiece Lounge and the women that hung out the Masterpiece Lounge. They're no better, no worse than anybody else in America, whether white, Asian, Mexican, whatever. Uh, and what they thought matters and carries the same amount of weight. And, and perhaps this is also, like my mother being a factory worker and, and just so many of her coworkers were white and a part of the same union as her. And there would be social events that, you know, the union would throw for the families and all that other stuff. And so, I, I don't, anyway, I wanna get to your column, uh, the debate <coughs> rules established by radicals compromise truth, morals, and the public square. You, you talk a lot about uh, Saul Alinsky and his Rules for Radicals uh, book that he wrote and how they've been implemented into this society and they've changed public discourse and the public square in a way that it's hard to have an honest conversation, but you tell us uh, what you were trying to convey with this column. Sure. So uh, my, my central point is that the and, and this really is sort of fuses the last conversation um, is that the most radical actors in society today who I think would be part of that elect have basically taken some of the tactics and really the essence of Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals and fused it to their obsession with identity politics. So they are practicing a radical form of identity politics. And in doing so, they've, they've written some of their own rules. And as it relates to the public square, one of the most important ones is that you use your identity. So whether that's your skin color, your sex, your sexual preferences, um, your so-called gender identity, you use that as a weapon against your enemy, quote unquote, and that enemy in this case, and they generally have all the same enemy, that enemy would be straight white men or um, sort of the component parts of that, uh, of that list. So there are times in which the enemy is straight black men. Or sometimes if we're talking about um, you know, transgenderism, it may be straight black women. It may be quote unquote um, cisgendered black women. Just depends on the context. But you use your identity to bludgeon your enemy, to work your way into the public square. You wield it as a weapon. And then on the flip side, you use it as a shield to protect yourself from criticism. So you say, you must listen to me. We need authentic black voices. We need authentic female voices and, and, and gay voices, right? You force your way into the public square. 
And then when people hear your radicalism worked out, if you're a black radical feminist professor, per, per se, and you say that part of being pro-black family is, is to support laws that have kept the black population at 13% of the US population for the last 50 years. Or you may say that the nuclear family is not necessary for the black community to thrive. So then you, you, you articulate a radical position and when someone comes to challenge your actual position, you put up your identity as a shield and you say, oh, you people are only attacking me because I'm a radical feminine or, or because I'm a black woman. This is racism and sexism and patriarchy. Um, and we see that time and time and time again in areas both in politics and culture. I use a couple examples there. The most recent one is, you know, dealt with the recent poll numbers that showed the vice president at about 28% uh, approval rating. And of course, both the current uh, press secretary, Jen Psaki, and the uh, former funny comedian, Jimmy Kimmel, both said that, of course, it's, you know, racism and sexism are playing out, and that's why people don't like Kamala Harris. And, it, and they've been running this play they ran it last year when her presidential campaign collapsed before the first primary, and they've been running it for years. Um, I also talk about you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren and the end of her presidential campaign after Super Tuesday, not winning a single state, and seeing an analyst on MSNBC named Zerlina Maxwell come out and say, it's because of sexism in the Democratic Party. Now, to believe that, you would have to believe that um, in the primary where voters tend to sort of be more, either more liberal for Democrats or more conservative for Republicans, right? These are the most animated voters in a particular political base that these people for some reason have a problem with women leading. After they just voted over 69 million of them or 65 million of them voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. You would also have to believe that Senator Warren who lost her state, Massachusetts, she came in third Massachusetts and third among women that the 54% of the voting uh, electorate in Massachusetts somehow came down with, you know, a case of internalized patriarchy that, that day. So the whole point of it is to never have to answer questions, to never have to acknowledge their radical ideas, and always to use their identity as a shield from actual criticism. And these people say that they want equality, but what they really do is enforce a different type of inequality where the only people who are actually um, exposed to, to criticism, the type of criticism that shapes and refines ideas for the public square are the same straight white men they say that they're trying to defeat. So uh, at the end I talk about, you know, you, you can tell a lot about a material's composition but how, how it responds to fire. So with gold, it you know, a, a goldsmith can, can shape and, and um, alter and improve and refine gold after it's been tried by fire. But lesser materials are, are, are consumed by that fire. And what we see is a bunch of people who just don't have either the, the, the strength of character, the strength of ideas, or just the guts to have their ideas fully vetted in the public square. So they say that they want equality but their behavior shows that they want charity and, and not parody. Mm. Totally agree. 
love the way you broke it down, both here and in your column. The other thing I love about it is you left room uh, for the Ball State guy with the 2.3 grade point average. You left <laughs> me room to come in behind you because I'm going to write a follow-up column that's mm. going to be a little less. It, it, there will be no political correctness. The, the mm. whole public square has been emasculated. Mm. And we, it take, one of the, what Delano's saying, iron sharpens iron. And uh, because we feminize debate and conversation or whatever, iron isn't sharpening iron. We're not putting heat to gold. Uh, we're putting heat on paper. And mm -hmm. the paper's burning up, and oh my God, you're killing me! Oh, stop it, stop it! I can't, don't challenge me! And so, uh, Delano, great piece. We're gonna talk about uh, my piece a little later in the week. Okay. I gotta keep it moving. Uh, great, you know, between you and uh, John McCorder today, I'm surprised I didn't bring a thesaurus and a dictionary out here today uh, to help me. Uh, that was a lot of brilliance from John McCorder and Delano Squires. Uh, stick around, Uncle Jimmy, and our approval rating on Bill Belichick just around the corner. I, I, oh, I see TJ Moe still here. So we'll get Uncle Jimmy's review of TJ's performance today as well to see if uh, Uncle Jimmy's going to let him out of boot camp. Uh, all that and more. All right, welcome back. Uh, time for Uncle Jimmy to uh, rate my brilliant performance today. It was amazing. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I could be any better. Though. I mean, from the opening to the interviews with John McCorder and Delano, <laughs> virtuoso performance, Jim. I'm sure the, you see it that way. <laughs> well, I mean, there's really no need for me to say anything since you said all that, isn't it, Jason? Well, I just, I, the viewers like to hear you talk about how good I was. We've heard a lot of good things about. Well, I want to ask you this, yeah. and I thought about this yesterday, since now I do have to come out and massage you in front of everyone. <laughs> is it that you look so good, or is it that the suit looks so good? Jim, you're distracted from the comment. It's my performance. Everybody already knows that I look good. We're actually talking about my performance as the host of the show and what a great job that I did. People like to hear that from you. It's one of the, their favorite parts of the show. So if you're sitting here doing this show, bucket booty naked, soaking in baby oil, it would still be the same? No, it would not. Okay, that's very much. That'd be just like that New England win last night. Come on, man. Come on, man. Uh, any review of uh, TJ and his performance today? I'm, TJ's growing on me. He's growing on me. Um, you, you used the analogy at the end of the show, iron sharpens iron. Yes. Now, you know, TJ came on the show. We kind of had a conversation a couple weeks ago because we had to get on Steve Kim about his appearance. We said we was going to tighten up TJ and his appearance. See, TJ came in with a little button-up today. Yeah, that was a little bit, but he had a T-shirt on yesterday, didn't he, or what? Yeah, he, what, he, he had that on yesterday. Well, I don't know if you noticed or not, but Steve Kim stepped up his game today. I did, did notice Did you see that. him? He came in with a Robin shirt on, like a Batman and Robin shirt. 
<laughs> Did that, was you? A, that was a University of Miami. How the hell it wasn't? That was a Batman and Robin shirt. He thinks the TJ's getting too close to you. Oh. And both of them is battling to see who's going to be your Robin. Oh, oh. See, there, that, that's what's going on. See, but let me explain something to you. I'm, what I'm really liking about TJ in this yeah. boot, boot camp thing. Let me show you something I learned about TJ. TJ, on your feet! <laughs> Give me 10! <laughs> right now! <laughs> Get the hell out of here. <laughs> boy gonna be all right. See what I'm saying? I damn tomorrow I'm telling him give me 20. <laughs> <laughs> On a serious note, I opened the show talking about pride and Bill Belichick and the misuse of pride. It made me think of some conversations you and I have had, serious conversations about serious pride. Serious conversations. Yeah, about pride and how I think it can be misused. Did you have any thoughts, Ray, and I'm asking this more seriously than you don't need to tell me how great I am here. The, 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 whole, the, the whole pride situation is, is it, it goes two ways. You know, um, we as black people are taught that, you know, I, I was raised to say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. You know, that's what I was taught. And if you're not proud, it's almost like it's a Joe Biden type thing. If you ain't proud, then you ain't black. You know, but the one thing that I've heard so much today is we replace that word black or, you know, when, when it shouldn't be, you know, I mean, or, or even like the Bible said, pride comes before the storm. Sometimes you need to put all that pride away. You know, sometimes it's just best to be humble and a little humility. Yeah, one, I didn't say it at the beginning of the show, but my overall point is we've turned black pride into a, a form of idolatry. Right. And all sin comes from idolatry. Right. We've turned our skin color into an idol and it actually takes our eyes off the prize. Mm -hmm. If we want to celebrate and take Jesus Christ is who we should be celebrating and keep our eyes focused on that. And are we protecting his legacy, living up, uh, grateful for the sacrifices he made. Uh, but, but we spend all of our time worried about what black people, black people, black people. And if we would worry more about Jesus, 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 trust me, black people, black people, black people would have less problems. Well, one of the reasons we as black people have the problems that we have is because we've given Jesus back to white folks. That's why we have them problems. That we have. <laughs> What's wrong with us? You ain't got no Jesus in your life. It's that simple. You know, your guy that you had on earlier said he was the atheist. Yeah, John McCorder. Yeah. I love him. He's yeah. a very intelligent brother. And, you know, he kind of, you know, he said he, he was an atheist and he kind of said it with pride. But I would just like to share a quick story with you about an atheist. Very, very quick. I, I worked with an atheist in law enforcement, and he was a very proud atheist. And I told him, I said, just wait one day. And sure enough, one day his child was in the hospital. You know, the first things out of his mouth, oh, my God, oh, my God, what about my child? Can you help my child? Give him some time. They'll come around. <laughs> That's not even funny. That's a true story. Let's now, go. I, yeah. Uh, Bill Belichick approval. Let's do it, man. I don't think this will be very hard. We're probably both really high on Bill Belichick. Job performance, you know, they've lost four games. So I'm a, I give them a 24, not a perfect score. What do you mean they lost four games when they won seven in a row? I know, but they what kind lost of counting you doing, man? They ain't lost. They ain't won seven. They've they won, won seven? seven in a row. They just beat the division rival. What's they they, they are they are in sole possession of the AFC West. Oh, okay, you're you're right. All right, character, you gave him a 25 perfect character. I got him at a 23. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. He, he ain't coming out of character. character. Mean and snarly. Hmm. That's what he's doing. 25. All right, yes sir. Yes sir. Authenticity. I think we both think he's very authentic. 
Yeah, he's true to the game. Although I, I guarantee you, in his private life, he don't wear them rags he be wearing on the sidelines and at press conferences. But you do know Bill Belichick. He seems mean and snarly and dri- you know he's got a bad girlfriend. That lives here in Nashville. Yes, I'm very aware of that. See, I didn't know what her address was. <laughs> Jason, jeez. Come on, man. I'm very aware of that. It factor, uh, I'll give him a 10. You know, he's got man boobs like me. And so uh, that hurts your it factor. Okay, guess what? But his man boobs don't have hair on them like yours. You know what? <laughs> Bill is an old man, just like me, game recognized game. Hey, man, I give him a 20. How do you know my man boobs have hair on them? Jason, I follow you closely on Instagram. <laughs> All right, I got him at an 82 smoke show. Man, you got him blazing hot. Matter of fact, my name on Instagram is Midnight Lavender. You might not know who I am. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I hope that's tomorrow, because we will see you uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yes, sir. Great job. My sister, no relation, we all just want to have freedom Sitting on the corner, never been alone, I'll break my back for freedom Bless, we are living, get back, we are receiving all the seed when we all want to be free We want freedom I just want, I want to be, I just want, I want to be, I just want, I want to be, I just want